Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. It is the one that lifts us up to glory. It is one of the songs that we would like to learn as a congregation. It is a old song. It is an old tune that we have not heard in a long while. Uh, Baptists in Romania sing it quite often. And uh, it is one of the requests I had for our team to consider presenting it to our church and learning it because it is such a powerful song. Well, today we are continuing our study in the book of 1 Timothy. I encourage you to open your scriptures to 1 Timothy chapter 5. We'll be reading from verse 17 to verse 22. 1 Timothy chapter 5 verses 17 to 22. If you are using one of the Bibles provided in the chair in front of you, you may find this passage on page number 1030. The word of the Lord for us this morning and for our hearts is the following. The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, do not muzzle the ox while it is treating out the grain. And the worker deserves his wages. Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. Those who sin are to be rebuked publicly so that the others may take warning. I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these instructions without partiality and do nothing out of favoritism. Do not be hasty in laying on of hands and do not share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Amen. Let's ask the Lord to give us his spirit that we may understand these words. Let's pray. Father, this morning I stand before you confessing my own sin, realizing my own inadequacy, and asking that you would humble me and, and look over my limitations and proclaim your word to us in a way that you want us to hear it. Father, we need your Holy Spirit. We cannot do it without your Holy Spirit. We ask that your presence would sustain us and you would open the eyes of our hearts. Father, we pray these things for our edification and we pray these things for the glory of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, for those of you who are visiting us, we are going through the letter First Timothy. In most of the sermons in this series, we have seen how the instructions were provided to a pastor how to deal with members of the congregation and how to teach the members of the congregation. Today, we have instructions for the congregation how to deal with its pastors. Don't you love it? Some of you who read closely our sermon cards, and you, you can get the, the titles of all sermons and what we're, what we're teaching these few weeks. By the way, we're two weeks behind on that. But those of you who watch those or those of you who get the weekly emails may have noticed the title of this today's sermon. And some of you, I know, some of you have been looking with great anticipation to today's message. One of you told me this week, I can't wait to see, to hear what you're going to say. The message, the title of the message is Keeping Pastors in Line. Amen. 
Amen. Come on. Amen. Four points. Four words. I, I'm gonna, I love this message because it talks about me. But not just me. It talks about any shepherd, any pastor, any elder, any overseer, no matter what the label is, that God calls over his churches throughout the world on this day to shepherd them and care for them. This message is encouraging you, the congregation, how to relate to those men among you whom God has called to lead you, to feed you. Four words, keeping pastors in line. Four words. Honor, protect, discipline, and examine. Honor, protect, discipline, and examine. Let's look at each of those, these four words. Look at verses 17 and 18 from the passage we read. Uh, Paul instructs Timothy how elders should be regarded. The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. Now notice the different label for pastor in this passage. Remember three, in chapter 3, the way Paul addressed pastors? What was the label? What was the word used for them in chapter 3? It was the word overseer. Now he's using the word elder, and he's going to use it throughout this paragraph. It's referring to the same person. It's referring to the same office, because in the New Testament, as we have seen a few weeks ago, pastors can be called overseers, elders, or shepherds, or or bishops as well, if you want to translate it that way as well. So, it's a, and notice also in this passage, there's a plurality of elders. Even though Timothy was a pastor and an elder in the church in Ephesus, Paul assumes that the church in Ephesus will have multiple elders or multiple overseers or multiple pastors. Notice the second, um, second of all, the work of these elders. Their work is described as, Quote, directing the affairs of the church. It's also described as working hard or as teaching and preaching. Now, if you're using the NIV, uh, the phrase working hard is absent from the NIV translation, but the Greek word for work is a word that assumes a very laborious work, very toiling work, very struggling work. And that's why some interpretations call it working hard or or. Uh, working strenuously. In other words, the elders of the church should not simply enjoy the title. They should not simply lead leisurely, but work hard in leading the church. Now notice the responsibilities of the church to those who do work hard at leading well the affairs of the church. The responsibility of the church is to honor the elders. Look at verse 17. The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of a double honor, especially those who work in preaching and teaching. Now, let me ease your concern and caution. The language of double honor does not mean double pay. <sighs> okay, so I'm not asking for a raise. Please understand. The language of double honor is simply honor in, in two different ways. Honor in the sense of giving them the proper respect 
But then honor also in the sense of providing finan financial means because they work hard at leading the church. Um, in other words, remember in, in just a few verses earlier, Paul told the church to honor widows. And now Paul says, the elders of the church who lead well are worthy of a double honor. It's a twin. It's, it's both respect and remuneration. Yet a church may not be able to hire all its elders. Who are the elders who should be considered to receive double honor, both in terms of respect and in terms of financial provisions? Well, the answer is the elders who lead well. Now, this phrase is not differentiating between elders who don't lead well from those who do lead well. If someone is not leading well, they should not be leading. Amen? So this is not about people who do it ba a bad job or a good job. I think the differentiation, this word especially, goes in a, in a different direction. And here's, here's the meaning of it, the emphasis. The emphasis is the, the reality. The majority of the elders in Ephesus were non-vocational elders. They were doing eldering work outside of their jobs. Actually, a church should not limit the number of elders it has based only on what it can afford to pay. Some elders will be non-vocational pastors or lay shepherds. Their time commitment may not be as high as a vocational elder, and that is okay. Now, some non-vocational elders might prove to be so good in leading the church that the church may call them to leave their jobs and devote all their time in leading, eldering, pastoring the church thus switching from a non-vocational commitment to a vocational commitment. Again, not all elders will respond to this call, and that is okay. A church should have non-vocational elders, godly spiritual men who qualify for the requirements for overseers in the church that are given in chapter 3, as we have seen a few weeks ago. And these men are called to provide spiritual leadership even though their sources of income might be secular jobs. So if the church in Ephesus is able to pay more vocational elders, it should look at those non-vocational elders and consider which of, them, which of them lead so well that the church would say, it is better for us to pick up the tab, your salary, so that you devote all your time to this work and not have to spend most of your time doing outside work. Do, do you see how this works? It's the, it's the elders who lead well the affairs of the church. That's the first issue, hint. And then there's another phrase there, especially those who work in preaching and teaching. Now, this requires some clarification, because in the history of the church, especially after the Reformation, this verse was greatly misunderstood. Some have argued that this verse makes a distinction between teaching elders on one side and ruling elders on the other side. The Presbyterian model or polity 
uh, the Presbyterian Church follows this pattern. They make a distinction between ruling elders on one side and teaching elders on the other, as if, as if the, the ruling elder's job is primarily about the administration of the church. And then the teaching elders are the, 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 the pastors, those who are the, the priests, as you would call them. But I would like to argue with you, and not argue with you, I would like to tell you my conviction based on this passage is that such a distinction is not warranted. The scripture does not differentiate between ruling elders as one body and then teaching elders and, uh, as another body. And here's my reasons from the passage why I don't think the distinction is adequate. It's not just from this passage. Go back to the qualifications because that's where the issues are. Remember the qualifications that elders need to be able to teach God's Word. All elders need to be able to teach God's Word. And then another qualification was that all elders must be able to manage God's household well. All elders have to do that. Though both of those qualifications are valid for any one elder. So the notion of saying some are just ruling elders versus others are just teaching elders is not warranted by Scripture. Even though um, I read quite a bit of John Calvin, on this issue, John Calvin was wrong. And, and, and part of the Reformation on this issue was not distinctly correct. So that teaching elders and ruling elders are the same body. As a matter of fact, I think what's happening here is that elders do rule by bringing God's word in all facets of the church's life. Now, yes, some of them may be giving more emphasis to administrative issues or other aspects versus others giving more, more emphasis on teaching and preaching, and that's okay. If, if we're talking about just degree of emphasis, that is okay. The problem is when we want to segregate those distinctions and those offices so clearly that one is not supposed to teach and the other is not supposed to lead. That's when we run into problems. As a matter of fact, like I said, teaching elders lead and manage God's household by teaching God's word. And they teach God's word by making sure that God's word has an effect on all the issues of the church's life. Finances, counseling, small groups, uh, Sunday school, um, caring for homebound. All of these ministries are done primarily through the word. Now, of course, you need other skills. You need finance skills. You need counseling skills. You need social assistance skills and a few other things. But, but what distinguishes the people of God from the social services of the world is that all these services are done through the lens of the Word of God. And that's why every dimension of a church's life needs to come under the purview of the spiritual leaders of the church. That's why sometimes the way some Baptist churches, not this one, and I, I really mean it, I'm not ironic here. There's, uh, there's some Baptist churches where it's not even deacons or the pastor or pastors who lead the church's committees. And you never know what goes on there. The point is leaders of the church lead through God's word in every aspect of the, wor of, of, of the church's life. 
So, elders are called to lead the church by bringing God's word to God's people so the church could follow it. Now, if a church can only pay one or two elders, it should prioritize paying those who in their ministry focus carry the heavier burden of teaching God's word. The reason to honor the elders in this double way is given in verse 18. For scripture says, do not muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain. And workers deserve his wages. The worker deserves his wages. The first quotation comes from Deuteronomy, from the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 25, where the point is that God wants to make sure that the animals who work hard are adequately fed. That's the imagery there. And then the second quotation is from Luke 10, the words of Jesus, uh, where the imagery is of a worker, and the imagery comes from a farming life. The worker who is worth, the farmer who is worthy of his produce. Now, both of these pictures are not the most positive pictures to describe a pastor's job. A cow, farmer. But that's not the point. The point is, first of all, it is hard work. If anyone wants to, to lead and be a part of, of the eldering ministry of a church, it is toiling work, it is stressful work, it is hard work. But the second point is that it should be, they should be honored because just like God cares for animals and for workers to make sure that they are fed well, it, the church must ensure that its workers, God's workers, are cared for. So the point is that God is concerned not about working animals, more, but more about his workers. Now, friends, let me pause here for a second. Let me speak something that's very unique to this church. Um, I praise God for the generosity of this church. Um, for me, for my family, and for allowing me time in my pastoral responsibility to prepare for the teaching and preaching of God's word. I'm well aware that there are tens of thousands of ministers around the world who serve in churches that do not have this capability. Or there are churches who demand from their pastors to do everything so they have little time, little to no time, to devote to preparing well and hard for teaching and preaching God's Word. Or there are pastoral positions where the job of a pastor is anything but teaching and discipling. Organize events, Bring a crowd, do anything you can to, to, to make a big hoopla, but it's not about teaching and it's discipling God's people with God's word. So, church, thank you. Thank you for realizing the priority that your shepherd must give to teaching God's word. And thank you for providing financially for him and his family. I just praise God for that. I praise God for Park Hills. Now, that's the first point that Paul is telling the church. Uh, honor the elders in a double way, both respect and finances. Let's go to number two. This is a little shorter one. Verse 19. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on evidence of two or three witnesses. Why should an accusation not be entertained except with two or three witnesses? Well, this principle comes from the Old Testament where two or three witnesses were required to sustain a charge, and secure a conviction. Deuteronomy 19, verse 15. And the same principle goes for convicting an elder in the church or in the New Testament. 
And it comes to a very practical necessity of protecting pastoral work, which is so often vulnerable to slander. Um, as one of the reformers once said, none are more exposed to slander and insults than godly teachers. None are more exposed to slander and insults than godly teachers. Now, such teachers or pastors or elders may do their work very faithfully and yet trigger criticism. Now, sometimes the criticism is warranted. They're not doing a faithful job. Sometimes the criticism is needed because they need to be corrected. And we'll, we'll talk about that in, in a second. But there are times when criticism comes against the elders of the church, against the teachers of the church, because they're doing a faithful job. It is because they're faithfully teaching God's word, not teaching what itches people's ears, that they trigger the greatest criticism. Oftentimes, the enemies of the gospel take vengeance on the ministers of the gospel. So Paul says to Timothy, when you hear an accusation against an elder, don't act on correcting it unless it comes from two or three other witnesses. Unless the facts are verified. Now, here's a, here's a way, here's a point for you to take with you. If you have a reason to bring an accusation against any elder, ensure first that you got the facts straight. I think this is just good, wise practice about anything in life. If you have a complaint, if you have an accusation, at your job, against your boss, against a coworker, make sure you get the facts straight. can't tell you how often it's been when someone brings a complaint about something and oftentimes I have to just correct the facts or they just may not know the big picture and it just is awkward for the other person so before you bring an accusation make a commitment in your heart whatever whenever you do whether in the church or out of the church I think this is just a good practice first check and see if the data is correct so if Timothy is to hear an accusation against one of his fellow elders, the accusation needs to be verified before Timothy acts on it. This is part of protecting the elders. So how should we as a church, how should you as a church relate to the men that God gives to shepherd you? First, honor. Second, protect. But then we get to verse 20. In God's church, there are elders who lead well, and there are elders who do not lead so well. There are elders who do not lead well at all. And this is the third point of our text. The third way a church should relate to its elders is to discipline them. This is where you want to take out your pen and write a lot of notes, because I'm going to tell you how to do it. When the accusations are proven to be correct, you know, you've, you've, you've done your job of making sure that it's true. It's not just facts. I mean, it's not just your impression. It's facts. It's, it's, it's not just one incident. It's, it's a pattern. When the accusation is true, what do you do? When the accusations are proven to be correct, an elder is found guilty, repentance is to be called for. If he's not willing to repent, 
he needs to be brought before the whole church. Look at verse 20. Those who sin are to be rebuked publicly so that others may take warning. Now, I think the ESV has a more precise translation on this verse. Uh, as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so, they, so that the rest may stand in fear. Those who persist in sin. In other words, it's not simply those pastors who sin because that would include all of them. Friends, I don't know if, if you have not realized, but pastors deal with sin all the time, even when they're alone, with their own sinfulness. None of them, none of the pastors, none of the shepherds that God calls to shepherd God's church, none of them are without sin. The issue is not simply sinning, but persisting in a particular sin, especially after it has been brought to their attention. That's the issue. So that when an accusation is brought against a pastor and it proves to be, correct, it, to be correct, he needs to repent of it. Now what should a church do if the pastor refuses to repent? If the pastor refuses to correct? The answer is rebuke him in the presence of all. Now this is church discipline at the church level. But now it is targeted not against just, just a member, but against the very past of the church. In other words, pastors are not exempt from being disciplined just because they're pastors. Pastors are not exempt from being excommunicated just because they're pastors. And churches should not be afraid of disciplining their pastors publicly. Church, Park Hills Baptist Church, if you're a member of this church, hear me out. If I fall in this pattern, for whatever reason, of 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 20, I'm asking you to rebuke me publicly. That's the way you need to do it. I hope and pray that God will protect me from sin, from hardness of heart, that I would ever get to the point where I would explain my sin away or hide my sin or take the side of my sin even after you rebuke me individually and privately. I pray that God would protect me from that hardness of heart that I would stubbornly continue in my sin and refuse to repent. But if that would ever come about, I'm asking you to discipline me publicly. Because that's the word of the Lord. This is not my church. It's God's church. And this is how God wants you to handle me in those situations. Could it bring division? Yes. Could it be painful? Yes. How can we as a church, commit to do this and yet protect against division, protect against um, the church splitting up? How can we protect against those kind of things? I think there are three things we can do as a church to protect ourselves when you as a church will have to come after me if that would ever come about. 
and discipline me. There are three things we need to do. First of all, we need to teach the church, we need to teach one another that it is normal and biblical to handle sin in this public way if nothing else works. That's the first thing we need to do. Just accept the fact. Scripture calls us to bring sin that has not been repented of and nothing else has worked in a final stage to bring it to this level. We, just, we need to accept that biblical teaching. We don't want to go through that. None of us wants to go through the pain of that. But that's God's word. Now, for the past few months, we have been learning as a church about the practice of church discipline. Some of you may be tired of hearing it. Some of you came to me expressing, I think very genuinely, and I took it very genuinely, your concern that church discipline is going to become our focus. And I hear that concern. And I would say, and here's my response. I gave it to some of the, the people who did approach me about that, and here was my response, and I want all of you to hear my response on this. I understand why it appears to be our focus now. It's because we want to learn how to practice it biblically. But right now, we're just in the learning curve. As soon as we're getting it, accepting it, and start practicing it in a, in a, in a, in a biblical way, we will not have to focus so much on teaching about it. It is just for a season that we have to teach on it. And I hope and pray I, that God will bring us to that, to that point in the life of our congregation when we know it's, it's a normal part of what we need to do when sin is not dealt with and is not producing the fruits of repentance as it should in all of our lives. Now, let me, let me be very careful. Let me qualify what I just said. It's... I do not want church discipline to be our focus in the sense that we will make it our mission to become detectives of your private sins. That's not the way we want to think of, of a focus of, of church discipline. We do not want to think of the focus of church discipline as, as, as learning how to become uh, witch hunters, uh, to, to, look for, to look for every little thing in your life and see if you, if you match up. That is taking it the wrong way altogether. We only want to deal with it in a biblical way when sin, my sin as a pastor, surfaces up and becomes public knowledge. And only when that sin, which you will correct me, only when I refuse to be corrected and to repent, it's only then that church discipline goes to that level. It's not that we would become now, uh, have uh, this huge mission that we would be about church discipline. So please understand, I, I want to make sure that you understand why we're doing this focus. It's just because we are right now in a learning curve. Now, let me ask a question. If you think that we have taught enough on the subject of church discipline, is it because you're ready to practice it? Or is it because you're unwilling to do so and therefore you're tired to hear it? You have to answer that question for yourself. I'm, I'm not, I, I don't want to suspect anything. But I just want to make sure we understand why is it that we've been focusing on it. And it, it has to include even the pastor. If the pastor is in this situation, 
it ha he has to be brought publicly. Now, typically churches won't do this. Why? Because, like I said, fear of division or, or other problems. And typically what happens in most churches is when the pastor sins, uh, the, the deacons or some members in the church will ask the pastor secretly to resign so the sin will never be brought to the public. That's how typically it's handled. And yet avoiding to bring the sin publicly is also a lack of disobedience on God's word. So the first way we want to protect against division, against issues in the church, you know, splitting over these issues is that we wouldn't want to teach a church that this is normal to bring sin publicly when all the other options have been exhausted. The second thing I think we can do to protect the church from uh, getting into divisions and, and splittings and all those kind of things over these issues is that it's advisable that a statement about the public nature of rebuking sin should be included in the constitution of the church so that it stands as a witness of the church's official position. Today, people can file lawsuits for defamation of character if their sin is dealt with publicly, or members might take it personally. But by having in a church con church's constitution this statement, it's another way for the church to make deliberate its position on this issue. Now, let me praise you, church, because Park Hills has a wonderful statement about doing church discipline publicly in our Constitution. It's been part of what we've had throughout the years. So I think on this issue, we, we're, we're right on. But then there's this third step. It's not enough just to have a statement in the church's official documents. It is wise to inform a pastor prior to getting on board with a church, that this is how the church will deal with persistent sin in a pastor's life. Some time ago, I was at a conference where one of the, one of the pastors of the conference was honored. It was his 65th birthday. And, and John Piper, another pastor, came and, and offered words of appreciation to honor this pastor for his influence in, in America today. And he had a long list of, of words of appreciation for everything this, pa this pastor has done. But at the end of his comments was something like this, and I'm paraphrasing. But if, you, if there will ever come a time where you will deny what you have read, what you have written, what you have preached or confessed, we will rebuke you just as publicly as we have honored you today. It was very surprising to hear in a conference of about 5,000 pastors, two leading pastors in America treat themselves with this kind of open biblical expectation. Friends, it is appropriate for a church to remind or to tell its prospective pastor or pastors or shepherds before they get on board, this is how we're going to deal with it if it will ever come to that point. We don't want it to be this way, but if it will ever come to that point, this is how we'll deal with it. And by the way, the same could go for prospective members. Tell them ahead of time how this church is committed to deal with unrepentant sin of its members. When members know, when people know ahead of time what's coming, they will not be as surprised when it comes, and it will diminish the potential of having divisions or just flaring up issues. So how can we do it? Teach a congregation over it. Put in the church's documents and tell it ahead of time that this is the way we're going to handle it. 
Now, the reason for handling a pastor's sin publicly is the following. Quote from the Bible. So that others might fear. Now, this is an interesting reason to do public church discipline, especially for a pastor or against a pastor. Church discipline is also, it is not the primary purpose of church, of church discipline, but one of the secondary effects is also a teaching device for others who must learn that unrepenting sin brings public shame. It, at the level of the church discipline, it is a very temporary shame if the person repents. If the person doesn't repent and they will face the, ju the judgment day of God with that unrepented, stubborn sin, they may face an eternal shame, an eternal judgment. And that's why God gives this teaching mechanism as well to remind us that, public, that sin needs to be dealt with. In other words, when people hear that unrepentant sin is not going to be swept under the rug, and again, I want to emphasize unrepentant sin, stubborn sin, ongoing sin. And we're not talking about those things that you wish you, you want to get out of, but your, your habits are just there and you can't. You're fighting. You're fighting for 20 years to get rid of this issue, but you, it's hard. It's still hard. I'm not talking about those issues. I'm talking about those stubborn, unrepentant sins that you just, you don't want to fight. Uh, people may be afraid when they see, oh my goodness, at Park Hills, you hear, do, you, do you hear? They, they do church discipline there. Oh my God, I don't want to go there. I don't want to go there. People will be afraid, right? Uh, as I was examining the scriptures, I realized that there's a passage in the book of Acts where some of this fear showed up. Remember Acts 5? Ananias and Sapphira? And God handled it pretty quickly and pretty drastically. And twice in that verse, the phrase, twice in that passage in chapter 5, there's this phrase, great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Twice. How many of you would like to be members of that church? The church in Acts 5. Would you like to apply, submit your application for membership? Knowing that that's the kind of stuff that's going on in that church? Before you're glad, before, before you're too glad that you're not a part of Acts 5 church, I want to ask you, is, is your gladness caused by the fact that you're more interested to preserve your life than interested to fight off sin in the right way? Deal with the idols of your own heart. Why is it that you would rather not be in an Acts 5 church? The, here's the surprising news for us. Paul considers this fear a good fear. We should cultivate in our hearts such a fear of sin. It's because we treat sin lightly that we have a hard time accepting correction of sin. If we had had a big view of sin, we would have an easier time with accepting correction of sin in our lives, in our church. It is when we have a small view of sin that a correction of it seems so out of place. To have a small view of sin is to have a small view of God. To have a big view of God is to have a big view of our sin. 
And when God appears big in a congregation, that congregation will have a big, big view of sin and an easier time correcting it because sin is a big deal to our great God. What cost God, His only Son, cannot be treated lightly by us. What cost God, His only Son, cannot be treated lightly like us, by us. So when discipline is done publicly, especially against the leaders of the church, it, is, it will increase fear in others. But beloved, it is a good fear. It's a godly fear. It's a fear of sin, of the gravity of sin, the fear of dealing with this sin correctly before it's too late. Friends, I wish, I wish we would grow in our fear of sin. As a church, I wish we would grow more in our fear of sin. I think we do take it a little too lightly. I think the Lord has been growing us in that, but I think there's more room to grow in our view of sin. We take it too lightly. We, we too easily excuse our sin by appealing to God's grace. And we forget the words of the song, the grace of God cleanses us from within. It broke away the grip of sin in our lives. We forget those promises. And all of a sudden now we start arguing back for the existence of sin in our lives. When we should never, ever think about trying to excuse sin in our lives, but tr bring it to repentance, bring it to cor be corrected, invite the others to help us to get rid of that sin. And then there is a, let me, put, let me say this, there, I'm weary. I am weary when Christians, when I hear Christians excuse their sin or refuse to repent of it by appealing to God's grace. Uh, there's a passage in, first Hebrew, in Hebrews chapter 10. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Go and read that passage carefully. Hebrews chapter 10 is an incredibly important passage. And read through all the warning passages in the book of Hebrews that speaks to Christians. Do not Take lightly your fight over sin. So we call people to stop sinning because God's grace teaches us to forsake ungodliness. We call them because we love them. We do not want them to die in their stubborn sin and thus face God's verdict of judgment of raging fire with no sacrifice left for their sin because that person has deliberately kept on sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth. We love these people too much. To, to let him die in their stubborn sin. That's why church discipline is an act of grace. That's why church discipline is an act of love. It's an act of care. And friends, you need to start that with me. If I ever were in that position, you need to start doing that with me. And then there's a solemn, solemn charge Paul gives in verse 21. I charge you inside of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels. Notice how many things he's bringing together. God, Christ, and elect angels. Keep these instructions without partiality and without favoritism. And this is, Paul's referring to the act of disciplining the pastors. It's easy when we do this discipline to allow some favoritism or partiality. Oh, don't do it to that guy because he is a big donor of the church. Can't risk that. Or, no, we shouldn't do it to that guy because if he leaves, who's going to leave this church? Can't do it to him either. Okay, we're just going to do it to those who are not, not going to cause as big trouble if they leave. 
Paul says, no, 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 no. Everyone has the same standard, including the pastors. Do it without partiality. Do it without favoritism. It doesn't matter how much money they give. It doesn't matter how influential they are. It doesn't matter how important positions in the church they might have, even be the position of a pastor. So we looked at honor, protect, discipline, and finally, examine carefully before affirming their ministry. This is an easy one. It's the last one. It's a very short one. Paul is saying, listen, Timothy, you might have an easier job if before you accept these pastors into the ministry, you do a better job examining them ahead. Doing a sloppy job at the beginning and then, and then realizing you have to deal with all these sins that have not been properly examined first just short-circuits the process. Focus. Give your attention. Examine them carefully. And if you examine them carefully, every, every aspect of their lives, of their family lives, of their convictions, then you may protect yourself from having to do some of that heavier, more difficult work later when an accusation against a pastor is correct and he does have to be repent and he fails to repent and you have to bring him to the church. Honor, protect, discipline, and examine. May God give you, the members of this church, the grace to deal with all your shepherds from now on until the Lord returns with these kind of ways. Let's pray.